As much as I like to fight everyone, yeah, yeah. I'm having a pretty good time here. Why you mad? Why you mad? Why you, Why mad? you mad? This will come afterwards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, Louisa. Oh, shit. Hi, Jake. Hey. <laughs> How's it going? Good. What do you mean? Oh shit! Hi, Jake. I uh, I mean that like in the instant that we said okay, go, and then you went. I forgot that we were gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what was happening. I was like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> it was very, and I was like, oh, I did agree to this. Oh shit! <laughs> My bad. Hi, Jake. <laughs> Hi. What's up? <laughs> Nothing, dude. It's uh, you know weird times. Weird times. Um, Chilling in Brooklyn, I guess. It snowed a little bit today. How's it going with you? Oh, the weather is delightful out here. It's cold for LA, which is like just nice for me. Which is like what, 67 or something? No, it's like in the 50s or something, but it's like, oh, really? uh, you know, it's like, like a coat and a, a beanie sometimes, but then the rest of the day, it's like fine. It's pretty cool. Uh, must be nice. <laughs> I kind of miss the snow. Did you see, oh, by the thing, speaking of snow, did you see Michael Rappaport's like. <laughs> so he went to Portland and then he got protested and he got all angry about it. And they cut, they called the cops in to protect him from the Hilarious. protesters. And then the next day, this blizzard hit Portland and he was streaming and he was like, you can come out to protest, but you can't come out to my shows. And they, <laughs> they canceled the rest of his week. It's pretty funny. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> um, man. That is really funny because it's like, oh, what are you all snowflakes? Yeah, I thought that's like your whole bit is that everybody's a snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course they stayed home. Ball, yeah, they all stayed home. They had somewhere to be. Um, I had, uh, I've been working. I've been uh, watching stuff as usual. Oh, I went to see some live comedy. Oh, my God, that was great. Um, unironically, maybe that sounded like I was being sarcastic, <laughs> but no, it was great. <laughs> um, and, also, I I saw – I'm just going to jump into it because I, I'm dying to hear what you got to say about this, Jake. But I think we touched on it a little tiny bit um, last week. But I had been watching The Curse like week to week like some kind of fucking dinosaur actually like waiting for the next episode. <laughs> and uh, the new the, – the final episode of the season or I don't know if they're even going to make another season. I don't think they should. Um came out this week and you caught up and you watched it yeah what did you think tell us well so i what i did i watched the first episode when it first came out and then i kind of was like not that hooked by it and i fell off and then everyone near the end of the season started going no no no, no it's really good so i watched it all in a day like i just binged the whole thing yeah. and then like kind of waited another day for that finale to come out and <clears throat> so I, I i'm glad i did it that way because like now I'm totally curse brained. I have all all the thoughts. You're gonna hear everything <laughs> think about this. But um it was really like and oh by the way, spoilers if you haven't seen this and you want to watch it, like we're gonna spoil it. Um but, yeah, go go watch the it's all it's like half hours or forty minutes, forty minutes, and then no, the ha- last one's an hour. No, they're hours. They're it's hours? mostly hours. Okay. Yeah. Some of them are like forty, but it's yeah. uh, you can do that on TV now. Is yeah. you can change the time. But um so it should be. But anyway, go on. But uh <laughs> Because it was so surprisingly slow burning, everyone expects from the Safdie brothers, because they have an established style at this point, that 
if you're watching a Safety Brothers thing, it's going to be like all gas, no brakes, and you're going to be having an anxiety attack the whole time, right? And this kind of wasn't, and it it's good. You, clearly, by the end of it, you realize they were doing a, a big slow burn to a to a climax that then sort of fakes you out and all this sort of stuff. And then there's like another thing. Uh, but I'm glad I watched it all at once because I think I might have fell off, you know, because there's so many things on TV. If I just only watched like yeah. three episodes, I'd be like, all right, what? Okay. I, no, I well, you, you did fall off on episode one and most people <clears> fell <throat> off, I would say, and then came back to it later. But it's not to be all like, oh, you watched it the wrong way. There's no wrong way to do any art watching, loving, whatever. But, you know, it's funny that um, – so Gabe did make me watch uh, Good Time because I had not seen Good Time. Good Time's cool. Yeah, and um, obviously I had, seen, I had seen the fucking Uncut Gems one, which uh, I don't want to get emails about this, but I think it's <laughs> not that great. Um, it's good. It's a good – whatever. Anyway, but, I, but your observation about the speed is really interesting because of the fact that <clears> – <throat> This show, more than any that I, that I have watched in, like, probably my life, really was extra impacted by having to wait for the next episode. Yeah. Because of the fact that instead of, like, it still had the safety discomfort. It was just an anxiety based in something completely different. Like, slow. And it's not even that it's slow burning. It's that it, it just is. And it doesn't go anywhere. And it just is. (laughs) And you're just like every episode. Oh, okay. So we didn't actually get anywhere. (laughs) Like (laughs) fucking Sisyphean fucking shit. And it's like, oh, fuck. You know, whatever. But let's let me just plant this in your head. It starts to be about the, oh, this is my everyday now forever. Like it, while Uncut Gems and Good Time, are like really about an um, a sort of a event in which the main characters are either escaping from their regular life or they're like trying to do a shortcut to like make their life better fast. Like that's why the speed goes with it because mm-hmm. they're kind of like trying to get out of the lives that they're trapped in. And the curse is a full reversal of that where it's the sh- showing you the lives people are trapped in. Yeah. Or like, I, I agree, but I think it's almost like, it's just, it's almost just a long game version of the trying to get out of your life because all the characters in this are trying to um, like resolve these huge contradictions and conflicts yeah. in their like identities, like where they come from, things that are like inescapable about their whiteness right mm-hmm. and in trying to get out of all that stuff they like they choose to live a style of life that then they sort of realize like oh i i'm trapped in this and it's like yeah. you can't actually do this and that yeah. sort of creates like a dread where you're like you know i made my bed and now like oh shit did i permanently condemn myself to like these situations that are just Unundoable, you know, like yeah. fucking giving a house away or like giving the credit card to the lady at the fucking shop and going, yeah, just fucking, you know, yeah, crazy. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> um, okay, so let me tell you some things I think about this, right? Yeah. So I, <clears throat> it, it kind of occurred to me at some point that there's, it's 
it's possible that there's like a supernatural kind of horror element going on in the show. I think eventually it it paid off. But while I was watching it, I was thinking about the idea of a curse a lot because um, I, my favorite horror film of last year, I can't remember if I, if I was, if I talked about this on the show, it was so long ago, but uh, my favorite horror film of last year was smile, which I don't know if you saw, but like I, I watched it out of like a matinee because I was working in Manhattan at the time. And I'd go into work at like four or something like that or five. And uh, I so I would have afternoons off and I love going to the movies alone during the day at the matinee because it's like a lot of times you're the only person in there. And I watched this fucking movie Smile one day, which I didn't know anything about because it was like low budget. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like a big you know, big, big thing that there's a lot of uh, rollout and media for and stuff. Yeah. I have no idea what's going on, but it was brilliant. It was, it was a Paramount plus exclusive. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. First, uh, I believe so. And then it came out on everything else recently because I saw it like a really long time ago. The premise of it was like, clearly like it was like a short film and then they were like, okay, we'll try to make it into a movie. And it's such an ambitious idea that like, if I heard that, I'd be like, there's no way to make that into a full movie. Like that's fucking yeah. kind of dumb, but it fucking worked. And I think part of it was that I watched it alone and then one other person came into the theater and sat kind of near me and it just gave me the worst fucking dread the entire movie. Because <laughs> the movie's about a fucking weird curse you can catch where you become like, a demon is kind of living in your brain. And like, when you look at people, suddenly they're not them and they start smiling in this really weird way. And then yeah. that's the demon and it starts fucking fucking with you and stuff. And, uh, there's this guy, Kyle Gallner in it is like in a lot of horror films, great actor, uh, Kevin Bacon's daughter. I can't remember her name, but, uh, yeah, she's, she's the, the main one. She's the but lead. She's fucking great. Go ahead. Just a question. What is the, uh, what made you think before the last episode that the curse had horror in it? So, the, well, throughout the curse, I mean, the curse is like, it's called the curse. It, it, there's, there's the first thing that happens is that Nathan Fielder's character is like, uh, in this situation where he, you know, they're filming a fake, like they're, they're filming it like a home and gardens TV show thing. And they're filming like, meta reality like some of some of the scenes are faked the way reality tv is and there's a little kid in a parking lot and benny safty's character goes go go give her a dollar and he only has a hundred on him so he gives her the hundred to get the shot and then he comes back goes yo can i get that hundred back i'll give you twenty dollars but i just didn't mean to give you a hundred and she says i curse you and then from there like there's this entire side plot or main plot or just this thing threaded throughout the whole uh tv show where he's trying to figure out whether he believes that kid actually cursed him or not, because she starts saying stuff like, Oh, the chicken, like, she, she, he, you know, at one point he, he runs into her again and he goes, what, what was your curse? And she said, I, I said the chicken would go away. And then he realizes there was a point the day after that, when he like ordered some food and there was no chicken in his chicken penne. And he's like trying to figure out whether he's actually cursed or not. Like, did that kid really curse me or am I just interpreting all of this stuff as a curse, which is like a silly thing to do, but it's the thing that humans do, you know? And um, so the reason I, I like Smile so much is because like the, it, it movie horror film. I love horror films. None of them actually fuck with my head, but that one really did. And I started to realize, I think my favorite genre of horror is the curse genre. Like it's a under, uh, un, unsung 
concept in horror. You know, we all have, we all know zombies and vampires and stuff like that, external threats. But like the thing about like a movie about someone being cursed like that is that, uh, the fucking terror of it is that no one believes you and you can't get rid of something and it just follows you everywhere. And there's, you know, horror is all metaphors for real life stuff or whatever. And for some reason, for me, like that, like it reminds me of having reply guys who are trying to kill me and stuff. And just like weird stuff that's deeply burrowed in my brain. But uh, yeah. I, I think it, it fits pretty well with, you know, I don't know, some some aspects of modern life. I can't figure out exactly what it is, but I, I was like, oh, there's something to that. This really works. For some reason, that really resonates. And like yeah. um, the question of whether or not what's happening in the curse is actually supernatural. I'll spoil it for anyone that hasn't fucking whatever. You could turn this off, but like the, the penultimate episode, he decides, Oh, you know what? I have been ignoring what's going on in my inner world and in my life and in my relationship with my wife. And I've been attributing it to this curse thing. And that was stupid. And they have this huge climax where him, like the, you know, they seem, kind of seem like they're going to get divorced throughout the whole thing. And then they like realize that they love each other. And he's like, I was doing that. There's no such thing as curse. This chicken thing is some shit that I just looked at and I gave way too much attention to and way too much meaning to. And it's, uh, you know, it's not real. And I was doing like centric, like ego, egocentric thinking, like something I was thinking about a lot in terms of this metaphor too, is like, in alcoholics anonymous language, there's this term uh, piece of shit at the center of the universe, which is like, if you're an addict, that's how you think of everything is, Oh, I'm so put upon. I'm so it's, I'm the main character of reality and and nothing is my fault. And everything is happening to me, which is kind of like what his character is going through, you know? And I think that like in that penultimate episode, it kind of seems like that could have just been the lesson, you know, because a lot of TV shows, the penultimate episode now in prestige TV is the climax. And the, the last episode is like an epilogue. Right. Right. So the well, form, everybody expected like a nice little wrap up. Yeah. Because of like what the form has conditioned us to, which I almost think that they may be smart enough to have played on that. But Oof, man, <clears throat> I have a. I am. First of all, I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, not shocked, but like, I guess like I had not. Uh, considered this from the point of view of it actually being supernatural or intended to be horror by the authors, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is horror in the sense of okay, let me start here. My favorite horror movie of 2023, actually, since we're gonna do a little recap, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like our digger recap show, uh, was called Soft and Quiet. Did you Ooh, see? I haven't Soft- seen it. Oh, Jake, can I ruin it that right now, though? Yeah. <laughs> okay, because here's the thing. So, Soft and Quiet. Oh, oh my God. I can't believe. Okay. So, it's on Netflix, which I canceled already, so I can't have the pleasure of watching it again. But um, <laughs> Soft and Quiet is this. It's a movie that starts like this, right? We pan into a blonde, you know, attractive, maybe like 30-something white lady with um, who is like a teacher, right? You can tell she's like a teacher in a classroom and she's like wrapping up for the day. And as she walks out of her classroom, she like picks up a pie. It's like a big pie dish covered in, in foil, right? She picks it up and she starts to walk out of the school to go to her car. And as she walks to her car, she sees this kid, maybe like six or seven, like sitting by himself, waiting for his parents to pick him up and they're late. So she comes up to him 
And as she goes to walk up to him, she sees that there's like this uh, cleaning lady, an older Latina woman mopping one of the classrooms. Okay. Uh-huh. So and it's because it's like one of those schools, like in California, where you can see the classrooms from outdoors. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, she walks up to the boy and she's like, oh, you know, like, oh, hey, Max or whatever his fucking name is. Uh, you're waiting for your parents. Oh, that's cute. Well, that's nice. And then she like looks at him and she's like, um, it's. Uh, was this woman mopping when you first came out here? And the kid is like, yes, you know? And she's like, well, that's very disrespectful. She should, you could have slipped and fallen. You should go over there and tell her that she should never mop when you are around still because you could slip and fall. And he looks at her like incredulously, but she's like, no, it's your right, you know, like to be respected or to demand respect as a, as a man or something like that. Uh-huh. And then she like lifts up the foil on the pie and she shows him the pie, but we like don't see what she's showing him, right? The big thing. We don't see what she's showing. Yeah. So she goes and she gets in her car after she like the boy goes to talk to the, the cleaning lady. She gets oh, in her car oh, nice. and she drives up to the church, right? So, so far she's like a teacher. She's a nice lady. She makes pies or baked goods. And now she's going to a church for some kind of uh, meeting. And she meets another white lady out there. And they're like, oh, you're going to the meeting too? That's great. So they go inside. And it's a bunch of ladies having like rosé. And they all brought baked goods. And they are sitting in a circle in like a church meeting room. And Jake, they basically start talking about how like, oh, you know, I'm so glad that we found each other because it's it's getting to the point where, you know, you're, I got passed over at a promotion at work. You know why? Of course, they gave it to Tina because she's black. Okay. So then it like <laughs> slowly devolves into like a woman clan meeting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then when it gets like for the newer one, there's like a newer one. She starts to feel like, whoa, this is weird. <laughs> I thought I was just like meeting up with some nice ladies, <laughs> you know? <laughs> the main one who brought the big pie is like, oh, well, you know, let's just uh, take a little break and get some more treats and whatever. So she gets up and she gets the pie and she takes the foil off and now we can see it and it straight up has a swastika, right? Or like on, on the crust, <laughs> on the okay? Pie. Yeah. So the fucking priest comes in and he realizes, like, he overhears what they're talking about and he, like, immediately calls her over and is like, you can't have this kind of meeting in the church. Like, I didn't know that this is what it was. You have to leave. <laughs> and she gets super mad. And then together they go to this, like, small bodega type business that one of the other women owns. And they go there to get wine so that they can go hang out at another one's house, okay? Uh-huh. And the whole time they're mad and they're blowing off steam about how this... A white priest is like, you know, a race traitor because like he reacted that way because of the, you know, kicking them out. Uh And they're getting just like more worked up about how like the world and they're being replaced, et cetera, et cetera. And these two young Asian women walk into the store to buy wine. And they basically have a confrontation that the white women start. Like it's like straight up like American history X, Jake, but with women. And from this point, the movie just evolves actually in a very fast, safty sort of way uh-huh. where like uh, the Asian women defuse the situation. Like literally the white women make them pay $300 for a bottle of wine if they want to leave without trouble. Right. So they like are like fine and they give them the $300 and they leave. And this is like a small town somewhere where everybody knows each other. Right. Yeah. I think it's outside of California, actually. Uh, sorry. Outside of Los Angeles and like a maybe middle California area. Okay. So she... Um, 
the two Asian women who are sisters leave and they just go home and they're like, they basically got wine because one of them is having some kind of problem. And so they are just like getting together to commiserate, right? Well, one of the white ladies convinces her friends that they should go teach them a lesson and just like play a little prank on them. And there's like even this scene, Jake, where the husband of one of them tries to tell her like, no, you shouldn't do this. And in front of the other women, she like berates him and she's like, you know, what kind of man wouldn't support his wife when she's been disrespected and like whatever and like strips him of, you know, emasculates him in a way where we are seeing firsthand the horror of the way that women have upheld white supremacy in the past and still do. Right. Yeah. And patriarchy, actually. And it just becomes horrific because things just it escalates as bad as you think it does. And it just becomes a horrible thing. And like, how are they how's anybody getting out of this now, basically? And so it's a horror movie in that it does like the whole like um, you get very stressed out. You have to see some things and hear some things that you are not going to be comfortable with that make you really upset and make you reflect on like the world and your life and society and all of that. But Uh it's not like ghouls and curses like magical things you know what I mean and to me this is how I read the curse okay yeah because of the fact that like let's talk first audience okay I think one of the key things here is that like you're right that probably like a bunch of people came to this with a safety sort of like uh mentality and probably people had all or like the experience with all but this is like to me really clearly a product of like fifty percent Nathan Fielder and fifty percent Benny Safty, right? I almost think it's like all three of them because Emma Stone's also in there. She's yeah, harder think, to like. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to attribute something to her, but like it's like a it's a, what I was thinking was a, this is like a perfect like balance of what. Well, she Safdie's definitely in. understood the the she understood the assignment. She executed it perfectly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, but she's always been a fantastic comedic actress, dude. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is like all three of what they bring totally, is totally. mixed right. together. And her, what, right. hers is just harder to like really say that about because she's just a very good actor. Yeah, you know? exactly. But, um, but that, I mean, there's hella acting going on in here. Absolutely. And there's Nathan Fielder's like meta stuff and like the, you know, like the stuff so he was much. doing in the rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I thought was so great about the way that he fucking acted in this is that usually he's tricking people. That's how we know him. Yeah. And he's the fucking guy who's humiliating someone else, but he's like playing what, like a version of one of the people that he fucks with. Because he's the guy getting fucked Ooh, with, you know? Yes, you're getting pretty close to what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is, that's why I bring up audience, is that um, I respect Nathan Fielder more now than I did before watching this show. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we've shit on him before, but yeah. I mean, he's, um, he's good. Because it's- what he has done here is kind of like the Bo Burnham thing. It's the, the opposite of the Chappelle thing, which is not pandering. It's not being like, oh, this is what you want. I'll give you more of this bullshit, you know? Instead, what Fielder did with this was like make something that is very specifically holding up a mirror to the people who watched his previous shows and thought, this is so fucking funny. I totally get it. This is my sense of humor. I think this is this was for people that it was, he thought like, oh, you didn't get that I was making fun of you specifically before. Yeah, um, because like. 
you know, the fact that they chose to frame these two, this couple, not as like uh, influencers or like there could have been like a lot of, and we've seen that those other tropes being used like that. But instead what they did was go for the weird, we're going to be like good people, but like good capitalists, but like uh, the insistence on performing a, like a moral play for each other and for the world, right. Is exactly what he was mocking. Right. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, you want to say something? No, I just said, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. So, um, to me, what was weird is that, like, okay, if we compare it to artists, right, and we think about comedy. Oh, okay, okay. This is the best way to put it. You remember Kara, the Native American artist yeah. that that uh, Whitney was always trying to, depends on how you want to look at it, help, um, be friends with, steal her shine, <laughs> gain um, authenticity through proximity, you know, like all kinds of whatever transactional sort of relationship situations with her and Kara but what they actually sort of also were were um two sides of one coin okay so obviously I was like super struck by the whole like uh slicing meat from yourself thing as artists Uh right that Kara did and to me the best best episode was the episode where um Whitney goes to that supposedly like party with artists and there's like two actual maybe artists there, and the rest of those people are like oil tycoons and like whatever the fuck, <laughs> and like Elon Musk type people, you know? Yeah. Um, and like people who work for the government, and they're like, yeah, you know, sometimes I invest in art, and it's like you're just faking it. And she forces this conversation with Kara, in which Kara, um, so for anybody who didn't watch it, basically Kara is a local Native American uh, woman artist. Um, I think she lives in Española, but if not, somewhere in the vicinity of Santa Fe, right? And she's like an up-and-coming artist, and she's being written up and stuff. And she makes paintings and sculptures and also does performance art. And Whitney becomes like one of these ladies that is like, I fucking love Native art, right? And I love to support my uh, the Native peoples of this community and whatever. So she tries to ingratiate herself and make herself part of the Native art world in New Mexico, uh, in Española, I guess, in Santa Fe. And um, when she goes to see her do her um, performance thing, she's doing that thing where she's slicing off pieces of herself of turkey. She's slicing turkey and then uh, Whitney eats it. And I told you all about this like last time and you've seen it. So watch it, people. But the best episode was that art show one because when Whitney forces the conversation with Kara, I actually think that's like if not the, a, an important climax of this show in which it's like central to Emma Stone's character, Whitney, the, from the immediate, but Asher too. It's yeah, just well, that Whitney's that. the mouthpiece. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's yeah. like, it's the whole, it's the, it's a fucking microcosm of the whole thing that's happening in the show. But like, mm-hmm. what's great. If you notice her character, as, as soon as she goes into that little teepee with her in the art show that happens, 
she's told you're not supposed to ask any tell anyone what happened in here, right? Yeah. That's part of the art piece. She oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. She immediately is like, "What the fuck was that?" Because she's yeah. like, she it did something to her. It made her realize like <laughs> what it's about. And throughout the whole show, she keeps bringing it back up, and she keeps going, "I need to know what the fuck that was." And I think it's because it's starting to play on her guilt. Uh, which is what it's supposed to do because ooh, that's fun that's like uh unconsciously though right or subconsciously because consciously i think it's that she's mad that she doesn't get art oh interesting yeah <laughs> i didn't that think she, about that that's that's part of it for sure though yeah that she feels like she should understand what it's about and she doesn't well she's and doing that, like an emperor's clothes kind of yeah thing and that reminds like, her that she's not an artist like kara you know what uh-huh, i mean yeah so uh and that's why you see like the whole like uh, then Cara, after the show's like talking to other Native women, possibly other artists, and Whitney comes over to be like, "Oh, so awesome! That was so amazing!" When it was like clearly fucking mad awkward, <laughs> like, and was, like <laughs> "What are you talking about?" And they like kind of very obviously shun her, you know. So it's like uh, they, there's also at the very beginning sandwiching the show is. Do you remember when they first asked Cara to dinner, and like before Cara shows up? Whitney is telling Asher, like, don't forget that we need her to get the si- to sign the release so that we can include her art in the show. It's really important. They keep asking me about it. Don't forget to ask her. And then as soon as Asher, like, brings it up, she immediately, Whitney immediately goes into, oh, my God, Asher, come on. That's so rude. We didn't ask her here to ask her for stuff. <laughs> we just, like, <laughs> asked her to have dinner because we're friends. <laughs> you yeah, know? Like, yeah, yeah. So they both are playing this other side together. But... What I mean specifically is like um, in terms of this like metaphor of cutting pieces away from yourself. Okay. Kara to me represents uh, obviously, you know, like native peoples, um, but let's, let's speak about artists specifically. It represents um, humans who are full of expression and experiences and ideas and points of view and talent and uh, desires to contribute and to create. And as they go through the world trying to do so, they find themselves having to almost literally cut away pieces of themselves creatively and in their soul, emotionally, financially, with every decision, you know? So like we watch Kara literally crumble across the season as she sells more paintings to Whitney and other women like Whitney, other yeah, people and, and like it, Whitney. It ends with her quitting art. Right. So she quits art. And then at the end we see <clears throat> that Whitney's actually mad that not only did Kara quit, but then the New York times wrote her up for quitting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Whitney's like all joking, like maybe if I quit, somebody will write me up. And we've also now by this point at the end seen that like the show didn't come out on like linear TV. It got relegated to like a, um, a web series kind of situation, you know? Yeah. So they're like B B level celebrities, like super generous. Right. And so they didn't really achieve that much. They also are now pregnant by the time we're at the end. Right. Um, oh, so, Kara's arc is one of like having so much and losing it because of capitalism, because of colonialism, because of gentrification, because of all the things that take away from artists, right? Yeah. And on the other side, we have Asher and Whitney, who are both super empty people, 
right? right? They fully define themselves by what other people think of them. They are wrestling with, like you said earlier, with who they are and the accidents of their birth and the guilt of who their parents may or may not have been. Um, they've stumbled through uh, it's not even like through jobs because that jobs don't fucking matter, but like through identities, right. Of being like, I'm a casino guy. And then before that, this other one was like, I think she was an influencer. Right. And something like, I don't know. So um, they do all of this of like the passive houses and the environmental concern and the thing with the genes where what they're trying to do is like, you know, what the words they're saying is that they're trying to bring more businesses, create more jobs for the local community, uh, bring in more money, make the place nicer, reduce crime. So that's why they like give the credit cards so that people don't have to get arrested for stealing jeans. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so they're doing all of these quote good things, but it's not because they are good things to do. They're not even doing them well, <laughs> you know? Uh -huh. um, it's because they want the validation. It's because they want to be filled in like with cement trucks of validation. You get yeah. me? And by the end, I really saw the ending as like, not that it was like an actual metaphysical thing that happened, but that what happened was we just saw both of them lose themselves completely 100% forever. Yeah. Well, he okay. lost himself. Sorry. Just let me say he lost himself. Uh, this is going to sound like a dick thing to say, but like when artists who spend their whole lives cutting or like half their lives cutting pieces of themselves, trying to do their art, give up. <laughs> they, uh, because it's hard because it's, you know, they don't, they can't live this life of continuing to cut away pieces of themselves. A lot of them choose to turn to a life of being filled up with that validation cement truck from other sources. And they turn to having a family. And, you know, it's it's a situation also with like people who are like, well, I guess it's time to have a baby because our relationship is not great. Or because in this case, in the show we saw, they blatantly clearly thought it would help them with the show. Like they talk about how they like season two was planned to be like with a baby room and all this shit. Right. So I didn't see it as like they, uh, in that penultimate episode, they realized they love each other in that penultimate episode. They realized that they, without each other, they're even more empty than they are together. Yeah, and they sure. decided to double down on that shit. And so when he floats away <laughs> into space, it's like literally that thing that happens to sad dads who like stop playing the guitar and stop having dreams <laughs> because they just like <laughs> fucking moved upstate and do whatever. And her for the first time, Jake, we see when she sees the baby for the first time, it's the first time we see Whitney genuinely smile all the way through her eyes. Right. Yeah, so she's yeah. like actually happy for the first time <laughs> ever. Right. Which you might think is like, Oh, what a nice thing. But actually, it That's is up. a dig at motherhood saying that it's fucked up that you have nothing in your life until you become a mother, unless yeah. you became a mother. That is anti an anti-feminist framing of motherhood to believe that it is the one thing that can make you happy and to have never found any other happiness and anything else within you that filled yeah. you up is sad. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I agree, I think. But l- let me let me get. Yeah, yeah, go. Let me, let me give you kind of what I was getting at with the supernatural stuff, because I think it's probably dovetails pretty nicely with what, we're, mm-hmm. what you're saying about the ending of here. So the end. So the ending of this, right? There's this penultimate thing where it looks like it's going to be about, oh, you know, they almost fucking destroyed their relationship, but they love each other. There's this very like traditional climax scene where yeah. that Rod Stewart song, Young Turks, is playing and they're bowling, and it's like. Oh man! Wow, they came together in the third act, and, and they're a <laughs> yeah. couple again. And I was watching it, and I was like, you know, wow, I love that song, and this is kind of cute and everything. But this can't be it. Like, this can't, can't be something this ambitious. Can't be. Isn't the ending, that right? also totally? Isn't that also what happens in like real relationships, though, where people like have those moments of like, maybe like this is is this is, are we you going back keep to trying how it to was? recapture yeah, the magic, exactly. like that sort of thing? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what I think is brilliant is that there, that's a fake out, and then. The, yeah. What happens? They the the last episode is them. They're trying to make that reality happen, and then something happens where they wake up and he's just floating, and he can't. And he's you know he's stuck on the ceiling, and then he's gonna float away, and then he floats yeah. away, and all the horrible stuff happens, and, and the baby's born while he's floating off, and it's like fucked up, right? So <clears throat> the reason I was getting at the supernatural stuff, so I was thinking about it a lot with regards to a couple of things. One is that. Um, I read 100 Years of Solitude a while back, which is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? Mm-hmm. And he wrote that, and that's one of his most famous books. And then Love in the Time of Cholera, which I talked about way, way, way back on the show, is one of his other famous books. And Love in the Time of Cholera is interesting because it has less of the magical realism in it. Uh, 100 Years of Solitude has a ton of magical realism in it, which is kind of what he's known for. Yeah. And Love in the, uh, or 100 Years of Solitude is also really good because it's like – he was friends with Castro. Like he fucking wrote this story that's about, you know, it starts in primitive communism and it just mm-hmm. fucking, it does an entire historiography of like one made up little village in Latin America. Yeah. And like the, the effects of white people coming to it and bringing capitalism and bringing all this stuff. And there's like almost like sort of like a Montezuma's revenge kind of thing going on where like, things happen that uh, push, you know, people out of the village and stuff like that. And it, uh, so, so, you know, you sort of learn what he's, you get a picture of what he's doing with these supernatural metaphors, right? Especially when you read Love in the Time of Color and you go, wow, he can do this without using fuck a guy who has butterflies flying out of his head every time he walks yeah. into a room. He can tell the same story either way, right? Well, so the, the third thing I wanted to relate this to, or the second thing, I guess, is, um, the Shining, because I also read that recently, which uh, the book, I never read the book. I've seen the movie. The movie is one of the greatest horror films of all times. The book is, uh, it's it's a little different. And the reason I wanted to read it is because Stephen King said he hated the movie. He didn't hate it, but he had like this, this criticism of it. So I wanted to see what the deal oh, interesting. was, right? Yeah. So, so The Shining, the book, when you read it, it's more supernatural. Um, there's this really cool stuff where like as Jack Torrance starts to go crazy, it, the, instead of a hedge maze, there's topiary uh, sculptures, you know, where you make a bush and it looks like an elephant or a tiger yeah. or whatever. And as he starts to go crazy, uh, the like he'll like be looking at one of the tigers and it's got his paw up, you know, and then he like looks away and he looks back and it's now its head is turned towards him and it's paws down. And he's trying to figure out, like, did I imagine that or did I, you know, didn't I cut that thing? I thought I put its paw up. Right. And it serves as this great metaphor that carries the story along. And when uh, when The Shining came out, apparently I read I read like Stephen King's sort of response to it. And what he said 
was that he didn't think the film told his story that well because his story needed the supernatural yeah. because the supernatural worked as a metaphor for, you know, for what, for uh, a lot of, well, actually oh, fuck, I take that back. He didn't say that. He said like that he had this conversation with Kubrick where he asked Kubrick if he believes in God and Kubrick was like, no, not really. And he was like, that's why he didn't do a good job at portraying what I do with the supernatural. And he said that like, you know, Kubrick is too cold and rational. And also Jack Torrance in the in the movie, you can tell immediately that he's going to become an axe murderer. I'm going to call him out on this. In the book, you can tell too. It's like very yeah. clear what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It's not the point, you know? Yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because I was like, well, he's right, but he's also wrong because the movie is like one of the best horror films of all time. Yeah. Everyone fucking loves it. He's fucking wrong, right? Yeah. Um, but he's right that the way Kubrick told the story didn't use the supernatural in the same way that Stephen King uses it because Stephen King believes in the supernatural, but he also believes in it as like this interconnected thing between like our brains as antennas and God. And when when you, a ghost is like all of the above, it's both your fucking alcoholism and your grief and a real ghost and God all at the same time. And I think that like Kubrick and Stephen King arguing with each other is funny because like neither of them realize they're saying the same thing. They're doing the same thing. They're telling the same story, but with varying degrees of how it's told via like using metaphors in the supernatural. Right. Yeah. So with the curse, like the idea that it's like, uh, it's, it's trying to downplay like, no, 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 don't, don't look at metaphors. They're not real. Mm -hmm. Don't look at, you're watching a TV show. It's not going to have a big supernatural event. That's, that's, that's that what that's doing what it's what it, I think it's faking you into believing is that what when there's a metaphor at a show and there's a supernatural thing that serves as a metaphor that that's separating it from what's actually happening and it's t- uh, it's like deflecting from telling the the actual story which is in reality so then you get the ending where supernatural magical shit happens and I think that like the real story of the curse you know the, the big theme that's going on was always destined for disaster. And that disaster could have been told either way, flatly, realistically, totally. or supernatural. But the supernatural makes a fucking great ending. Yeah. But the, the thing is, like, what the story is about, I think, is you've got these, like, white people who are on Native American land. I mean, that's, that's like, classic ghost story shit, you know? It's almost using elements of ghost stories without being, like, an actual horror film um, or a horror story or whatever. And they're like this modern type of people who are um, aware of the contradictions of being like of, of, of capitalism and of being white and trying to like, um, like charity your way out of the, the, the fact that you are in a power dynamic. That's bad. Right. This is the thing I love about this show is it criticized this thing that people do all the time liberals, you know, where they're like, well, I give money to charity, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think charity sucks, honestly. It's a hot take for me. I, it's, I think what it is, is it's sort of this part of society where it's like, indulgences. Well, there's, but there's like a, a pressure. If we didn't have all these NGOs and stuff for people to, to give money to, they're like a pressure release valve for the pressure that would build up and cause like an actual revolution on some level. If there was like, 
actually maybe this is me being an accelerationist or whatever i just think it's uh giving it too much credit because the amount of uh philanthropy that actually helps anything it proportional to how much it actually operates in society that doesn't receive it so like the impact of most philanthropy is like uh outsized in the sense uh in comparison to what actual material impact it has anywhere so i don't think it does much as much for like keeping the masses from revolting as it does from keeping the narratives um around that like it's all working right no that's what that's what i'm but, saying but because that's, but that's for the middle class is I right guess that's what, what I'm but that's yeah. what i'm that's what i'm saying yeah. though i'm not talking about masses revolting i'm talking about like gotcha. the middle class because they play a part in this too and yeah. the thing that's interesting about telling stories from the point of view of fucking middle class and rich people, which I were addicted to as a society at this point, because those are the people that make these fucking stories is that they're also an organic part of what would happen if there was a revolution that they're feeling they, them being aware that they're what the situation that they're in is, is wrong is like part of this. And they're, their impulse to paper over that contradiction by the, the, and the way, and the way Bo Burnham put this in fucking in his special was like by performing all of this stuff and making it about their yeah. personal growth and stuff like that. Exactly. But it doesn't fucking work. And the more you try to do it, you know, the more I think they're imagining that, that, and the, that there's this end goal that they can reach where they just resolve this fucking conflict of what it is to, you know, to be like the white person who's, who's setting up real estate and stuff like that. And I think that metaphor is really um, illustrated in the fact that their sustainable homes are covered in mirrors. And so it's like they're trying to uh, live here, which is a thing that they shouldn't be doing without but being re- seen. Yeah. Because when those, when those mirror homes are shot in a fucking wide you know, angle, they, it, they reflect look, their surroundings. They look invisible. Yeah. And not only that, uh, she stole that idea from an artist. Really? I don't know if you missed, uh, yeah, I don't know if you missed that part, but I think it's like an episode one or two. Um, Kara kind of calls her out on it because, oh, when they're having that dinner, um, Whitney just like offhandedly complains that some uh, some critic wrote up something about her houses and called them a knockoff of this other artist. And then she was like, oh, can you believe that? Like, that's so ridiculous. Like, I see. Like, he puts <laughs> mirrors on the outside of buildings also. <laughs> like, so, like, she's basically <laughs> stole his whole shit. And she's like, but our house, our house is uh, passive, don't you think, Cara? And Cara's like, well, did you know who he was before you made the first house? <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> Uh, well, of course. And then Asher goes, I mean, who cares? By the time Whitney's going to be famous, whatever, nobody's even going to know who this guy is. And then like Kara just quietly looks at him and then he goes, and then, oh, and then Whitney looks at him like censoriously, I guess. And yeah. so then he immediately realizes that it's worse to act like you don't know who this important artist is than to dismiss him and to dismiss him, you know, than it is to just leave it <laughs> so but they're also okay. constantly trying to get Kara to validate them and she's so yeah. funny because she just won't do it until they yeah. like literally pay her like except she is dollars. except she is validating them every dinner she has with them every party invitation she accepts every art every piece she sells to them and that's the point is that she's struggling with that the whole time being like well obviously you know I need to sell paintings to live but does that mean that my painting has to be in your show on TV? Like, no, can we like take that out? And then she starts to realize like, no, they want the full like 
uh, patron act come and show up. And it's like kind of the the Punisher thing, right? Of like, it's not enough for you to just uh, respect and support my art. You demand my time. You demand my attention. You demand my approval of you. You demand um, intimacy, a forced intimacy based yeah. on the fact that you like my work. Um, but even the car is absolutely my favorite one. You know, I do want to go back to, I guess, like reason and logic versus superstition. Okay. Because I think you're right about like, uh, that they are clearly using, um, what do you call it? Like magical, real- magical realism, whatever, um, non-reality <laughs> as a device right in the show i just was asking like what made you think like at what point did you think some non-reality shit will happen right and the reason that i ask is because the characters themselves what the show the arc of the show actually shows us is that this this is a critique of people who consider themselves modern and rational And so, like, let's talk about the curse, right? Let's start with the curse. So the show's called The Curse. And the very first episode, we have a quite literal curse. A young immigrant, (laughs) a child of an immigrant um, who is, like, basically panhandling, trying to make some money, curses him for taking $100 back from from her, right? And she just says, I put a curse on you. And then he goes off, like for episodes upon episode upon episode, super worried that this little girl saying, I put a curse on you, is going to have an effect on his life, okay? So you can, I can see this, this one little scene being like uh, an extremely important symbol, right? Obviously, everybody would agree with that, but in like five or six different ways, okay? So if you think about the fact that we talked that about the fact that both Whitney, Whitney and Asher live this kind of life where they already walk around feeling like they're cursed, right? Like she walks around thinking she's cursed because of her parents being slumlords and because all of the um, privileges that she's had in life came from their bad choices, not hers. She's totally different from them. It's not her fault, (laughs) like that kind of thing. And he is walking around with the curse of having a small dick. (laughs) Quite literally. I don't mean that that's a curse. I mean that he lives his life like it's a curse and like the exaggerated smallness of the dick on the show is meant to, I think, show you that it's like, that's how he thinks his dick is. <laughs> you know, that's what he, that's how small he sees himself. Right. And, and so that's like um, the Can bigger curse, the bigger curses that are happening. Right. But hold on. But the, okay. the, what's weird is that like the juxtaposition of your right, they're in a magical land. Right. And uh, where so many, there's like other belief systems, other religions, other histories that they're not a part of. And, I would say to you that at the beginning, what we see is racism. The curse from the little girl is just a very plain pointing at how people like this um, liberal white people will, who think that they're good people, like you were saying, and give money to, I give money to charities or whatever, when actually having to interact 
with people who are poor, people who are black, people who are immigrants, people who are of a different religion, they become uh, suspicious, uneasy, uh, like they're dealing with a rabid dog, (laughs) you know, like just very, you're racist. You're not comfortable actually being around the people that you purport to want to help, right? Right. And so the whole rest of the show, he goes around like thinking like, Oh my God, there was no chicken in my penny. It must be a curse. Oh my God, there was chicken in this bathroom. It must be the curse. Oh my God. Like everything that happens, he's like, could this be the curse? Maybe is she really like, he starts literally investigating with his fucking other 40 year old friend, whether this nine year old (laughs) can actually put curses on people. Right. Right. And then at the end, we get to the end. And what actually, when we actually, for the first time, see some magical shit, right? His response, Jake, is science. His response immediately was, oh, it's the pressure. The house needs to be depressurized because the baby room has like a different uh, like HVAC system, let's call it. I don't know. I'm not a fucking contractor. But he basically concludes <laughs> that the reason he's stuck to the ceiling <laughs> is because of science. And he refuses to like in at that point, he doesn't ever think holy shit, is this the curse? <laughs> like, that would have made fucking sense, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, instead, he goes right into full, like, sure, dad mode, I know what to do, get on the floor, honey, so that you don't get sucked into an air pocket. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, air pockets that would suck her up? Where did you get this from? So the the uh, crux, I think, of what is being said about them is that they are like fake spiritual people and the curse is not external to them. The curse is inside of them. Sure. Uh, I think, I think the curse, just curse as a yeah. metaphor for all of this works really well because it totally. means it, 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 you can use it a couple of different ways. Right. I think that that's like the big joke of the name of the show because the curse is like the, the curse of being like fucking privileged and bougie yeah. and white. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, when he thinks that that little black girl cursed him, like where does the where does the idea of a curse in like yeah. horror as a trope come from? It's fucking racist. It's like you know, oh, I went to this strange exotic totally. land and then they cursed me. You know, that is that's writers f- yeah. fucking for generations like dealing with their guilt with like knowing- monkey's paws from Africa. It's just not real, you know. Yeah. You just you're doing that because it's a way to process the, all, this, all this real like social shit you're experiencing, totally. and like so. He, he, I want to talk about him and his little dick for a second because yeah, um, let's do it. You know, all uh, th- what is it? Tiny tomato boys? No, toma- yeah. cherry tomato boys. <laughs> cherry, cherry tomato, tomato boys. boys. Yeah, yeah. Um, all three of the main characters have these things in their past that they're like. They're trying to just fucking make go away because it's yeah. clearly eating at them, right? Oh, so like God, Benny Safdie, Benny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he fucking he indulges in alcohol and he does not. He's an, he, he doesn't. Uh, he fucking killed his wife by drunk driving and oh he rationalizes God, it. And, and he can fuck- I just pause you to like remind you of the episode of the date that he went on with the yeah. native girl? <laughs> yeah, it's so and, funny. And then he like tells her how he killed his wife in like basically he was drunk driving, but somebody t-boned them, so he doesn't think it's his fault that yeah, his yeah. wife died. Right. And then he yeah, and so then he tells her this whole story, and then he's like, "Do you I mean, you need to drive home?" And she's like, "No, I'll take an Uber." And he's like, "No, I'll drive you home." <laughs> and then as he's driving her home, he's like, "Well, you know, I don't want you to be uncomfortable, so open the glove compartment." And he like 
takes a breathalyzer right in yeah. front of her as he's driving and then yeah. he doesn't pass it so that they have to like walk home together Just, <laughs> jesus christ what but, a disaster but, of a human continue that was all i wanted to bring up <laughs> it fucking rules it's so funny yeah. but like what's important about that i think is that the 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 thing that he's grappling with is like his inability to take responsibility totally. for fucking anything right which is mm-hmm. like you know, you can look at that as like addict behavior or whatever, but it's like privilege is white guy shit. Yeah, you know, I've done nothing wrong in the center of the universe. Every fucking room I walk into is my living room. Right. Yep. And with uh, Whitney, it's like her parents, you know, are the reason that she has any position in the world and isn't in the fucking shit that she's you know, trying to help out or whatever. Or that other people that live in her parents' slums are in. Right, she's trying to like offset that by going, well, yeah. if I do this like sustainable house stuff, then my karmic record is kind of like balanced yeah. or something, but that's like not how that works, you know? Especially because uh, poor people can't live in your fucking weirdo house. Yeah, like you would have to do something like actually difficult and unundoable, like going against your parents or, or yeah. actually being a fucking communist or something in order to, to resolve that contradiction. So she's like trying to, uh, she's engaged in that fucking, you know, this performative thing the whole fucking time. She's, it's performative. She's an actor, right? She's yeah. engaged with going, if I, how can I act my way out of this fucking problem, you know, by just, doing things and, and taking the right photos and telling people, Oh, I think your thoughts are beautiful and stuff. And, uh, just paying like just a witness or whatever to, you know, to people of color, the fucking, the, the, God, there's so much of this shit happens in real life. So much. <laughs> I was screaming at my TV. I was like, Oh, this is so funny. Um, but like that's okay. So then Nathan Fielder, Asher, right. Yeah. He's really interesting because like the first episode you see his fucking tiny dick and then you see him fuck Whitney and he's got like this cuckold thing going on, right? Yeah, yeah. And totally want to talk about that too. Let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> so as a metaphor, I think what's going on with this idea of like uh, the, the cuck thing is, I mean, th- this that is often like when guys have that, when white guys have that, it's racialized. Like it's like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I get off the idea of a black guy fucking my wife because I have some weird True. racial anxiety about it and like you know who knows how the fuck that got into their heads and then it's just stuck yeah. there for whatever no not indictment on the fucking person but clearly like that's what they're trying to say with him having this because what's going on with him is that him and whitney are trying to do nuclear family shit that they're supposed to do that there are these dynamic pressures of, of their society telling them to do but they're trying to do it in like the wokest way possible and that's like pressing the gas and the brakes at the same time in a lot of ways because like that's like Victorian shit. You know, you're he he's he ha- like you should you shouldn't have an anxiety about someone fucking your wife, really, because the idea that she's your property comes from the system yeah. of oppression that you're engaged in, that you're trying to act like you don't fucking like anyway. Right. But it's clearly yeah. in there because it's uh, causing him to have like this just c- crisis over like the, the role that he's supposed to play that society's given him and how feckless and pathetic and much of a loser he is and how, yeah. how much that conflicts with it, you know? No, totally. It's um another, uh, I'm glad you brought it up because it's a weird, like I even like that they included it because it's another example of this dichotomy of the full person versus the, the empty person, right? Because, um, you know, the cuckold thing is pretty strange in the sense that depending on who you talk to, they only seem to have one understanding of it, either cuckolding or any situation in which your wife or girlfriend has sex with someone else 
is because you are um, insecure, you have some kind of this like racial or like whatever thing that we were just talking about or some kind of like inability to perform or something like that. And then the other side is that there are people who don't see their partners as property and enjoy like have uh, uh, compersion, you know, and are like respectfully open. (laughs) And so then it's like that second version is not what Ash and Whitney are doing. Clearly, yeah. they are doing a sublimating the fact that they are not he she's not really attracted to him and he knows that he is not satisfying her. But they are sublimating that away by pretending that they are having a kinky special. They're the only one that gets it. Romantic sexual expression. Right. Yeah. And this is just another extension of the ways in which they are both empty and they keep participating in even sexual interactions that just leave them empty afterwards still. Yeah. Right. Um, Maybe like a left turn here, but Kara's friend, I just remembered. He's so funny. I forgot his fucking name, but the one that like at one point Kara's having lunch with him, the native guy. (laughs) And then like. He's my favorite line in the whole show. Which one? What he's doing an impression. He's like, oh, should I pretend to be like an old wise native guy? It's so funny. When a cow has last done its last moo-moo and the owl has said its last hoo-hoo, then (laughs) the duck will say its last (laughs) (laughs) quack-quack. And it's so funny. Whitney just – and, like, yeah, Emma Stone's such a great actress. Just, like, with a full straight face, just, like, acts like he's a Dalai Lama just said some fucking (laughs) gold shit right now. Um, Very, very funny stuff. But, you know, it's funny that you say that it's, like, connected to real stuff because – I really do think that it is um, the, I saw a video this week (laughs) from a comic, you know, like everybody on Instagram now they had like, they put their little clips of their video, their um, video podcasts, I guess, right. Or Mm -hmm. their videotaped podcasts. Um, And so it was like a little excerpt from somebody's pod where as far as I can tell, they were just like ranting. So it could be like they were doing a solo pod or maybe they're talking to someone. I don't know. But the rant was basically about this. I mean, like, I should also almost read it to you because it has, like, letters, words. I'm going to read it to you. Here we go. Here we go. Um, it's not – I'm not making fun. It's just I want to discuss the, the idea <laughs> that is being proposed here, <laughs> okay? Okay. <laughs> Which is, okay, sometimes comedy is bad because people are getting stupider, and I don't think people realize that. Sure, the comedian could write a better joke. I'm sure they maybe even attempted to write a better joke, but audiences were too dumb – and dense to get them, so the comedian had to dumb them down. So please know that stand-up comedy is an art form where you as an audience member are heavily involved in the creative process. Maybe not you personally, but you as a people. It's going really fast. Hold on. <laughs> you know, so if you don't like the jokes people are telling, I got to be honest, you don't like the society that you're living in. Because the jokes wouldn't keep coming if they weren't getting laughs. This is one of those very few art forms where... It's a little bit on you. Ooh. Any thoughts I before I get crazy? <laughs> um, I don't think it's one of those few art forms. I think that's you just said something about all art. If it's yeah. the, if you believe that what you're saying, uh, no, please just go off. What, what do you? Well, I just thought, especially in in like in light of watching um, the curse, right, and uh, <clears throat> being obsessed with the meat 
allegory, the cutting meat away from yourself allegory, right? So this comic has a point, right? Well, it's not that they have a point. What I'm saying is some of the things that they said are factual, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So like, yes, uh, audiences are involved in the development of jokes and of comics acts and of bits and of hours and whatever. Uh, Comics use that feedback to gauge where they should change things, where they should add things, like what topics work out, what their audience likes, what they don't like. But here we just talked about someone like Nathan Fielder and Bob Bob Burnham, Bob Bo Burnham, um, who are comics who choose to say, yeah, who who choose to say like, Okay, I'm hearing that feedback. I'm hearing what you like. I'm hearing what you laugh at. Even Chappelle at one point was this guy who was like, yeah. I'm hearing what you laugh at. And I appreciate some of it. And I like some of it. But some of it I question. Some of it I wonder why you in particularly laughed at that particular word or at that particular part of the joke. And they consider it. And they think about whether they should pander and give easily fed spoons of sugar to their audience to just keep getting those tickets sold and those rooms booked and all of that. Right. Or, which is really like slicing those pieces of meat away. And so by the time you're like selling theaters with this method of like, well, if the joke gets laughs, I keep doing that joke. And you never question why those laughs or how those laughs or who those laughs, (laughs) then you end up being an empty person who is just sort of a vessel through which a fake or like reduced neutered form of art is passing through as opposed to like a fielder doing something where you are saying, if I have to cut off pieces of myself to make art, I am sure as hell going to make sure that they're the pieces I want to cut off. Right. This is like um, passive versus active artist shit. So yeah. like people that think like, actually, I, I, yeah, you're, you're totally right. The people that argue this in comedy are arguing a couple of things that are really fucking stupid all at the same time. I think one is that um, you have to do that, that you have to pander to the audience because they're like the divining rod and you have to follow them yeah. because you can, it's actually you probably have a better shot at being a fucking known person if you lead them instead and you're like the first person to do a genre of a thing or something like that that's way cooler than being the hundred bands that came after the velvet underground or whatever who just tried to sound like them right uh the second thing though the worst thing is that it sounds like you really believe that the market is the arbiter of truth right because like the their uh, popular stuff sucks. What do you mean? You know, exactly. like the most popular thing is usually like the worst fucking thing because it's it's cheese pizza. Everyone can enjoy yeah. it, right? That doesn't mean cheese pizza is the best kind of pizza. It I mean, it's not it, as interesting as eating something with anchovies and all sorts of weird shit on it or whatever. It's yeah. just that those things are only interesting subjectively to certain people, and that's like another way to do art is to go well. Okay, what if like certain things were real can reach higher highs if they're for specific audiences or if yeah you move you you break open a new fucking uh like tide in, in by challenging ideas and you know this is I, we've talked about this ad nauseum on this show but like the the lenin thing of like leading versus tailing i always think about like don't be someone who feels like you need to tail the masses and and coddle them and give them what they want to hear you know the revolution is all about fucking going out and and uh 
connecting. You know, you can't be completely in opposition to everyone if you're going to try to pull this off. But totally. you can meet people halfway and go, you didn't even know you liked this thing I'm about to do. Check yeah, this yeah. out. This will blow your fucking mind. Use the sugar to give them medicine. <laughs> I <laughs> guess. Nice and corny. Love it. I fucking hate that metaphor. I know. Here's a question for you. Um, you know, in the past, I have expressed slight, a slight disdain for absurd comedy. Right? And the thing is, I, I really watched The Curse as a comedy. Right? Even though yeah. it like made me really uncomfortable and it totally felt like a horror in the same way as Soft and Quiet. Um, but in the past I have felt like most examples of absurdity are the province of the privileged in that they choose to ignore the, I'm going to just say more important, uh, things and topics that should be addressed in my opinion, in art and in the world and by thinkers and such, um, to just be goofy. Right. But well, I shouldn't say but. So my question to you is, do you think, well, if you agree with me that the ending of this was absurd, right? Yeah. Do you think that it let their audience and or their target off the hook or not? Interesting. I mean, I, I don't have an answer. I'm genuinely curious. What you think. Sure. I think that... Uh, well, the ending was great because it is open for a lot of interpretation, but I also yeah. am going to argue that there's a right interpretation. And it's the the show was so clearly deliberately a like satirizing the the way white liberals try to rationalize their social position all the time. Yeah. It's fucking funny the way that they, totally. they did this in the show. It clearly has a point of view. And I think the ending with, okay, so let me throw something at you. This is something I thought about when I watched it. The fact that the literal forces of reality blew the fucking father of this family that was supposed to be forming off of the planet. The planet. And, uh, <laughs> it's <away>. so funny. <laughs> Especially when you think of like tropes like uh, he, dad went out for cigarettes and never came back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's perfect though because like, yeah. yo, like white people get to make families. The family yeah. takes resources to put together and there's this totally. thing, there's a stereotype about people of color because we live in poor areas Having and stuff. absent dads or no dads. Yeah. yeah. And so that is a fucking nightmare to a guy yeah. like a character like Asher, who has these anxieties about his masculinity and stuff like that. And his, yeah. and his ability to, to, to fill the role that's being prescribed to him. He's kind of like the inverse of Whitney because Whitney's got totally. all this stuff that she's trying to play down and he's trying to play up stuff that he feels required to play and can't fucking do it. Right. Absolutely, he can't yeah. be funny. That's the thing that guys are supposed to be, you know, he's, he's so funny when he's trying to be, when he's trying to be funny and he isn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like I saw the thing where like the forces of nature intervened and fucking decided to, to blow apart the situation as like, a way to to illustrate i mean i don't know maybe it is i i i saw it as revenge and them being like pulled back away from their their little respite in the penultimate episode of thinking oh this is going to be all right yeah no like 
you want to live like people of color, you're going to. You're going to have like <laughs> That's funny. because so we can't tell the story in a social way where like the cops kill you or whatever. I mean, we could, yeah. but it's to fucking paper over that contradiction. What if we it's just have the reality right. of the situation come apart and then destroy you and have this thing that you fucking were you know trying to do the whole time? That's a really good observation. And like uh, for Whitney's part, you know that they basically uh, I don't know if you caught this, but she had like. Uh, a whole birth plan, which, you know, like most white ladies do, right, where it includes like um, having like a specific hospital picked out and like a uh, uh, backpack and all this stuff and whatever. And then they at the last minute, because I guess everything happening with Asher being stuck in this roof or whatever um, on the ceiling. When she called the doula or the doctor or something, one of them was like, ah, you know what? Like totally disregarded what she wanted, which was yeah. to go to the fancier hospital in Santa Fe and was like, no, you should just go to the hospital and Esplanade. And she was like, oh, but I'm just worried, you know, the service, the nursing. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. And then he's like, no, it's great. They're great there. You're going to love it. It's great. And he like hangs up on her. And then she has to go to this hospital, which is not the one that she was familiar with and not what she this, planned. This and is then, why I'm saying this is a haunted house story. This totally, is like the Shining. Right. Like, and then she's like, into Espanola, and then now totally. all this stuff is going to catch up with you. experiencing medical care like a poor person where it's like they don't ask you your name like get the fuck in here nobody's making eye contact with you she's like asking for her husband and they're like yeah sure sweetie uh-huh, uh-huh. don't worry about it <laughs> you know like totally just ignoring <laughs> her and you're so right i totally missed that because i was so you know like just to go back for a second to the mom thing because uh, i don't want people to think i hate moms or anything but um <laughs> What I meant to say in the sense of like at the end, the two being people who were always empty and then um, losing themselves, the last little bit of themselves completely. I think Asher's is more obvious, right? Because he literally lost himself in space. (laughs) But um, in this whole like transformation to be all the things that you were saying that are expected of him and he wants to be this masculine vision of himself. And with her... I just want to say that it's like quite literally, this isn't me like projecting things onto this character. Quite literally, we watched several months of her life, if not at least like a year, uh, a year plus, where she single mindedly pursued her dreams. She single mindedly pursued what she valued. She did everything possible to perform, to transform herself, other than like actually interrogating herself, you know, and like changing as a person. But yeah. um, she she worked at it consistently the whole time. And then the moment that she sees her baby for the first time, a baby that we're pretty sure she didn't want the whole entire show, right? Yeah. And then the first moment that she sees her baby, magically, through great acting, we see her have the first real warm smile this character has had in the entire show. Yeah. And the fact that she becomes completely a different person in that second means everything she was before is erased not right. in the sense of like her personality or her failures or any of that or her position in society but her dreams her desires the things that she was going to pursue like this is going to be somebody who will now turn into a mommy blogger <laughs> and like right, right, be right. like her whole identity is motherhood because she is using motherhood taking motherhood as the thing that's finally going to fill her up right and now she has to do it without help from yeah. Asher. And here, check this out. A third thing yeah. happens. I feel like people forgot about this one. Yeah. The third thing that happens to our third member of the Trinity here 
is that Dougie, the character that his his thing is, you know, responsibility and stuff like that. Yeah. He fucking sits there and lives through himself being responsible for Asher flying off that fucking tree because yeah. he doesn't believe what's happening. And then mm-hmm. he has a breakdown and sits down on the ground because he realizes he fucking did it again. And he's finally confronted with this thing that he's been running from by yeah. trying to rationalize like, oh, we got T-boned. You know, it wasn't really yeah. my drinking and all this stuff. So, like, I feel like these characters get crushed at the end of this, which is fucking great. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic show. Five stars. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, it really, like, um, you know, I think, yeah, we've talked shit about Fielder, whatever, how you say the name, uh, before. But, um, you know, Bo Burnham's a little fucking weirdo in real life, too. Um, (laughs) I think it is it is true. Like, I think I tweeted something. I don't know. Um, I had been drinking, but I tweeted something about how like uh, you can't uh, you can't be not weird to do art. Like I don't know what it was, but somebody replied to me being like, "I, th- I guess it sounded too close to like uh, mental illness is good for art." You know that mm-hmm. kind of stereotype, and that is not at all what I mean. But it is what I mean is um, great art does not come from people who seek to assimilate or who seek to uh give everyone everything they want or who seek to never cause conflict or discomfort those are not the great artists ever right but everyone thinks that that's what you're supposed to do yeah. because that's short-sighted success right yeah. everyone wants to fucking reach the totally. high high immediately no one wants to be Nietzsche you know be remembered after they're dead right. or whatever or they want to cheat and and do this like Gervais and Chappelle thing where they think that they're making everyone uncomfortable by saying slurs and anti-trans shit and stuff like that and it's like no you just look stupid like yeah, and you're, you were telling just, a bunch of people what they want to hear. Exactly. You're pandering the to the other side of the room is all it is. It's not – you're not actually being edgy to anyone. Oh, you know what? I have one more thing about fucking yeah, curse. But I, it's, I feel like it fits in with shit we were talking about earlier. But um, So Benny, Benny Safdie is a fucking director. Nathan Fielder is also like a, a director and like an – he does a million – he does meta shit with cameras yeah. and recording and stuff like that. So that's happening in the show because there's this meta nature to the fact that it's a show about a show being made. And then also within it, uh, Benny Safdie's character is using like his skills as a director to manipulate things and to play like to kind of prank people. Yeah, what a dick. Yeah. But then also Nathan Fielder is doing. Did he put the chicken in the bathroom? Was it him? I don't don't know. I don't know. No, we don't. We don't find out, right? No one. You never find out. Interesting. I, I think the fucking little girl did it. I <laughs> um, <laughs> could be. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But like also Nathan Fielder does this thing where he records conversations on his phone while he's having them, which is a direct reference to the fucking rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And like, I think the part of like what you're supposed to get out of this is that that like cameras, documentation, uh, the media storytelling in this way are also like, tools of it's also like editorialized yeah yeah like and I'm manipulated thinking, yeah i'm kind of thinking about the way you talk about like museums and stuff like yeah. that or like mm-hmm. okay like we're gonna archive all this stuff and tell the story the way we want to tell it yeah. and they're trying to use that tool without realizing that like the the tool is the problem like yeah you're never gonna get out of this by trying to use the weapons that that are the things that you you know, you, you claim to be so averse to with like performing as a fucking lib that you're like, oh, I, 
I love people of color and I hate the poverty and we're going to help everyone out here or whatever. Like, yeah, you have to, you have to like rid yourself of all of that, but that would, that would hurt. That would take, you know, you'd have to take a hit in, in losing your placement in society to do that. So you're not going to do that, you know, and that's, that's liberalism, you know? Yep. Yeah. So watch the curse, everyone. We loved it. Um, next I will watch poor things soon. I just, ugh, going to the movies blows, dude. I don't know why we ever did that. Really? Uh, I watched it in the theater. I love yeah? it. Yeah. But I did it my just, daytime matinee thing. It's oh, daytime. Time. Yeah, that's cool. But I work uh, Monday through Friday and then on the weekends, the nerds are out on the daytimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Just kidding, nerds. I love you. Um, how long are we, have we done long enough? Are we talking more? What's going no, on? We're, we're, we did an episode. That's good. Hell I, fuck. Yeah. Look I at us. Stop myself. Cause I could keep going, man. Yeah, no, <laughs> look at us. We're doing great, but we'll probably bring it up later because it, it is a very, why you mad show, I think. And it, it also simmers. Like we'll keep thinking about it and things will come up. Yeah. Because That's I'm telling you, true. I can't stop talking about the meat slicing thing. <laughs> to everyone, I'm like, yeah, man, it's like having to slice turkey slices off yourself. I get it. <laughs> and people are like, what? And I'm like, trust me, I get it. <laughs> um, but cool. I don't have anything to plug. Um, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Yeah, whatever. I do comedy shows. It's fine. You can find out if you care about that in your New York City. And um, other than that, Luisa Diaz nuts on the stuff and Free Palestine. That's it, Jake. It's a good good plug. I have a ton of shit to plug. So my other podcast, Pod Damn America, that's left politics and stuff. You know about that one probably. Um, I started a new podcast with my friend Avery Moore, one of the funniest comics of all time. It's called That's My Podcast, I Don't Know You, and it's about King of the Hill. We're watching King of the Hill on the main Love episodes it. and on the Patreon. Check this out. We're going to read weird King of the Hill fan fiction from the internet and just oh my do God. Like an episode recap about that as if it was real. I think it's going to be so much fucking fun. Stupid question, but is all fan fiction horny? Yeah, right? No, not all. No? Like some people just write like a new story for the characters? Some of it's like um, scary. There's like creepypasta. Like a kind of well, gotcha, a, gotcha. A genre. Cute. No, uh, but it veers in that direction a lot. <laughs> I think fan fiction is kind of like a dream. You know how it always eventually yeah. becomes horny? Yeah, um, exactly. But we maybe we'll answer that question with the show. So Yeah, please uh, let that's me know. Going I'm going to check it out. I love King of the Hill. Yeah, me too. That's why I decided, you know what? You can't do gloom and doom all day. We got to make a podcast where I watch King of the Hill with my friend. I think it's Oh, I can do gloom and doom all day, Jake. No, I'm just kidding. Mental uh, mental health issues. <laughs> other thing is uh, I'm having a party and a show where I'm doing uh, my comedy show I do with my friend Jamie Peck called The Woke Mob, where we do comedy about shit that we think is funny. That's, you know, you know, our whole oeuvre. Um, it's the party is called crime wave. It's a party that I'm throwing with my girlfriend and a bunch of my friends. And it's uh indie sleaze era shit. We're going to talk about that in our jokes and stuff. Uh, it's on the 25th and I'll put an event, right? Link in the, the, the show notes. It's in Los Angeles. If you're anywhere near here, come on out and hang out with me. Cause I'm getting old. Um, Tell him I say hi when you get there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. And then well, I guess we'll figure out if we're going to do Patreon shit. Yeah. Oh, no, I turned it back on. So, Let's do it. Yeah. So it's back on if you um, can afford. That's great. We do have to pay for like hosting the RSS feed and for the, the stuff we use to record. 
whatever you call this thing that we're currently recording on. Um, so, you know, anything helps. Uh, also, Jake is an artist who lives off of this, so anything helps. Um, but also, we haven't figured out yet any extra things. Although, ooh, I'm going to ruin this. Ooh, I'm going to ruin this for uh, myself. Jake, I had actually gotten you an uh, end-of-the-year winter solstice gift. Um, but it hasn't fucking arrived yet, probably because of the Houthis. No, I'm just kidding. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, it, I actually bought just two YU Mad shirts. One for what? you, one for me. <laughs> yeah, Did like we I, make shirts? No, I just had two made. <laughs> and I'm like, I had to pay like $25 for each because it's only two. <laughs> oh my God. Dude, well, I'll just... I'll make, we should sell shirts. I'll make them. Well, I was thinking like maybe we can get them made and like give them to our Patreon, pe- Patreon people who have been around for a long time. They could just get a, a free one and maybe we can sell them also, whatever. Um, but I just thought it would be funny if it's just like me and you only wear them. <laughs> <laughs> I get high sometimes and think of dumb ideas. Okay, guys? Yeah, that's really funny. That's a great idea. Yeah. So you should be getting your end of year gift sometime in February according to the <laughs> shipping delays. Okay, good to All know. All power to the Yemen. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, cool. Bye. Bye.